This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Pramila Jayapal joined the Washington Post to discuss the issues driving the 2020 election ahead of the Democratic National Convention. Let's listen. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. During the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State was a backer of Senator Bernie Sanders. Now that Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee, Jayapal is all in for the Biden-Harris ticket to get them into the White House. But there's still, well, actually, are there still lingering issues between the centrist wing of the Democratic Party and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? We're gonna find out, because coming back to Washington Post Live is Congresswoman Jayapal. Thank you very much for being here. It's great to see you, Jonathan. Great to see you too. It's been a little while. So first, let's talk about Joe Biden's selection of Senator Kamala Harris to be his running mate. Um, you and she were both elected to Congress in 2016, you to the House, she to the Senate. Um, you, you both were the first South Asian women to be elected in those, into those bodies, and you both have familial contacts that go back to India. What does Harris's elevation as the first Black woman and first Indian American to vice presidential nominee mean to you? It's huge. I mean, it's a historic nomination, and you don't have to agree with every single policy to know that this is important, not only for the expertise that Kamala Harris's diverse experiences and background bring to policymaking, but also in terms of how people see their futures. You know, I always think about breaking ceilings, glass ceilings, whatever ceilings they are, as being important not only for what it brings to the position, but also for how women across the country, South Asian Americans across the country, immigrants across the country, and of course, black women across the country see the possibilities for themselves to be represented and to be seen. And so I think for all those reasons, it's a great choice. She and I have worked together on a number of issues. We both uh, worked together on putting together uh, a really fantastic National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, which Joe Biden has said he'll sign into law when he becomes president. And we worked on a number of immigration issues. Our very first bill in Congress was a bill together called the Access to Counsel Act, which we just passed in the House a couple of weeks ago. You know, I want to get to, to policy issues in a second, but I want to stick on one other thing. Senator Harris's mother came from, from India, as we've discussed. Her father uh, immigrated to the States from Jamaica. And now you have some on, the, some on the right reprising the racist birther lie that was used against President Obama, that being they're not legitimate. Uh, he wasn't legitimate to be president. She's not legitimate to run for, for vice president because maybe they weren't born, weren't, aren't American citizens, which is, which is not true and is a lie. Um, but what message do you have for the president and others who allowed that racist birther lie to fester? It's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. And, you know, I watched those clips. Um, I'll tell you, Jonathan, they're scared. They're running scared. And the president is going to pull out every trick 
in his book, including this racist, and you, there is no other word for this. It is a racist lie. He tried it on Barack Obama. Here we are again. And uh, I think every Republican should stand up and call the president out and say, this is outrageous. It is racist. Stop it. If you want to run for election, run in a way that honors who we are. But of course, Jonathan, we know that that's not, that's not the way the president does things. He is destroying the country. He is destroying the Constitution. And we've got to get him out. You know, the last time you were here, you were um, interviewed by my, my colleague, Robert Costa, and you told him that you hoped Joe Biden's running mate would be a, quote, bold progressive. Does Senator Harris meet your expectations? Well, she's certainly been very progressive on a number of issues, and I think she has evolved herself over time uh, on a number of others, and specifically around the one that gives the most heartburn to people, um, her record as a prosecutor. Uh, I think that, you know, she, I think, has learned a lot, and she certainly was the lead on the Justice and Policing Act. And I think we just have to understand that um, there is no perfection out here. You know, I supported Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders did not win. And so we have two choices on the ballot. One is Donald Trump, and one is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And there is no progress on any progressive issue that's possible with Trump in the White House. So Senator Harris has a number of places where I think she is actually excellent, immigration being one of them. But I also think that we just have to understand that we progressives are often the first to the best and most just idea, in my view. That's what it means to be a progressive. And that means that we've got to keep building the movement to get you know, uh, uh, our candidates to embrace our ideas and to get our candidates into office. And that is happening. We have made tremendous success and movement. And I believe that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, once we get them elected, will have to stay accountable to our base and we will continue to push um, in all the ways that we have done, even with Democratic presidents in the past. Well, that's interesting. You sort of, with that answer, you sort of leapfrogged to a, a set of questions I was going to ask you about that in terms of if the Biden-Harris ticket wins and they're governing next, starting next year, what are some of the things that you, give me, give me three, if you can, three top priorities you would have to, that you would push a Biden-Harris administration to focus on within the first hundred days? Well, um, it's tough to get it down to three, but here they are. Um, <laughs> number one, I would say we've got to get money out of politics and take on all of the corporate corruption that has been happening and corruption really in, in government as well. That has to be central. And there are a number of ways that we can do that. Elizabeth Warren and I have a great anti-corruption bill. John Sarbanes, of course, led the For the People Act. We have to make some structural changes on how uh, elections are run, who gets to serve in office, and what accountability they have to the people. Number two, healthcare. You know I am a Medicare for All fan, and I think that this pandemic has only shown us even more why we need to have a healthcare system that is guaranteed for everybody, that is provided by the government, that does not operate on a for-profit market basis and is not tied to employment. We made enormous steps in the platform 
to get some of those foundational issues into the platform. I hope we can talk about that a little bit. And I feel very good about the changes we made, but obviously we are not with the candidate who is advocating Medicare for all. And so we're gonna have to push to really make sure that those private insurance companies, for-profit pharmaceutical companies, do not get their hooks into the system again. And we gotta make sure that people have healthcare in this crisis and beyond. And then third, I would just say immigration reform. I think that immigration reform is about structural power. And immigrants have been a political football for far, far, far too long. And I think it's time that we reform the immigration system and stop using immigrants as a political football. And then I just can't help but say we must pass um, real policing reform criminal justice reform and police accountability reform, because if we do not take up the legacy of white supremacy and anti-blackness in this country, in all of our institutions, we will not make progress. I got in four, Jonathan, sorry about that. <laughs> Good, well, you got an amen from me for the, for the fourth <laughs> one, for sure. So let's talk about the platform. You were the, you were the, the chair of Biden's healthcare task force. Um, you and, and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives worked on the, uh, on the platform this year. But now word comes that Congressman Ro Khanna and uh, also I, I believe Rashida Tlaib have voted against the platform. Um, what were you able to get on the platform that energizes the pro progressive wing of the party, if not Congress, Congress um, members Khanna and Tlaib? Well, first of all, I think that it's important that we have people that continue to hold out the vision that we are pushing for. That never worries me that much. But what I will say is on Medicare for All, the reason that I feel good about it is, you know, this was a tough issue for the Unity Task Force. And when Senator Sanders asked me to co-chair it, understanding that I am the lead sponsor for Medicare for All, along with Debbie Dingell in the House, and I have this has been the thing I've been pushing for for years now, really for decades. And um, I wasn't gonna change my mind about it, but Joe Biden had a stake in the sand around this issue. His legacy with President Obama is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act helped tens of millions of people, but Jonathan, it simply did not go far enough because it doesn't tackle the for-profit nature of our healthcare system. And so what we did is looked at the foundational pieces of Medicare for All that we could get into the platform. That's not necessarily saying the words Medicare for All, but untethering employment from healthcare. That is huge and that's what we did. And if you lose your job as is happening and you have no choice, you would get automatically enrolled into the government option. That's a big, big standard piece of Medicare for All. Number two, any public option that is provided, not my favorite choice, but the thing that was on the table, any public option, we got it in writing, that it would be administered by Medicare and that it would uh, not be administered by private insurers. So that's huge. Third, expanded coverage across the board and services. We fought very hard for long-term supports and services in the Medicare for All bill. First time that's been included in the House bill. And I was so proud of that. We were able to get a real investment from Joe Biden into 600,000 long-term supports and services jobs, $15 minimum wage plus benefits, and that would eliminate the 800,000 person waiting list for 
those long-term supports and services. So that's huge. We got a no deductible plan option. That's huge. We got um, extended coverage on up to a platinum platinum level plan. That was not the case before. It was not a particularly good option, frankly, before. Now it is. So I feel like we were able to, and then the fourth thing I would say is prescription drug prices. We we have a fantastic platform around prescription drug prices, far better, frankly, than what we were able to get through the House um, uh, earlier this year, So or last year. So I think we really do have some foundational elements here around cost cutting, around coverage, and around um, you know, really how people get access to these government plans. Um, let's stick, stick to the issue of, of health, not necessarily health care, and talk about COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic that is just ripping and running across America. And it, it first hit in, uh, yeah, Seattle was the first city to be hit by COVID-19. What's the status of the, of the pandemic in Seattle? It's horrendous, you know, and it's we we did a really good job, I think, early on with no models. We have a great governor, Governor Jay Inslee, who immediately was on it, took it seriously, addressed it right away, put in place restrictions almost right away. And so we were able to contain it and we thought we were on a good path. But then, of course, uh, this administration has been so intransigent, so cruel as we have lost um, more lives than we lost during World War I and the Vietnam War in just a period of six months. No testing, no contact tracing, no PPE, no domestic production of the things that we really need if we are going to tackle this pandemic. And then telling people that they don't have to follow the science, that they don't have to wear masks, that they don't have to socially distance. Casting doubt on all the things that we know are the things that will control this virus. And then on top of it, you know, I proposed a Paycheck Recovery Act that would subsidize salaries and benefits of workers, keep them tied to their jobs. That is the scale that we need to address. And this administration has blocked us every step of the way. So what do we see in Washington state? The same thing we're seeing across the country. Increases, spikes in our cases, we're having to slow down everything. Our schools are not going to be able to open in person. That is just lunacy at this point. So they will open virtually, but we need the money from the federal government to be able to address it here in Washington as elsewhere across the country. Well, I mean, I'm gonna ask you the question sort of that I asked Congressman Jeffries in the, in, in the last interview, and that is Congress left town without a coronavirus relief bill relief bill pass. Um, there's a focus now on the post office and securing the vote and, ma and mail-in voting, and yet unemployment, uh, unemployment benefits have stopped. Um, there are all sorts of things where people are being, they're feeling it. They're being jammed financially. Their economic security, health security, food security um, is now in jeopardy. Why hasn't Congress moved? to bring relief to the American people? Well, because the, the White House has refused to actually do what we need to do, even to the extent of just continuing what we did, what we did before. They want to slash unemployment benefits. Can you imagine, after giving a $2 trillion tax cut to the wealthiest in this country, when people need the government the most in red states and blue, urban and rural, people are literally dying, but also figuratively 
uh, with so much anxiety, being kicked out of their homes, not having money for food, not being able to send their kids to school, no childcare. And this administration wants to cut unemployment benefits. That's outrageous. They want to give money, Jonathan, only to schools that open in person. Can you imagine three quarters of the largest school districts in the country are not reopening in person and it would be absolutely detrimental to public health to do that. And so there are real issues at stake here. Rent and mortgage relief. They don't want to extend uh, the, the rent relief and mortgage relief and ev evictions moratorium. These are things that we must get done. And so we're not talking about anything extraneous here, but Mitch McConnell is nowhere to be found. He's given up any responsibility. He's essentially made the Senate irrelevant and everything is in the hands of, of Donald Trump and his White House, and they are blocking every attempt to help the American people, which is what Democrats are doing, standing up for the people. You know, Congresswoman, as you were you were laying out sort of the, the case there, uh, the, the thought just hit me. I, I, to my mind, I'm sort of breath, it's been breathtaking to watch the 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 incompetence um, that has come out of this administration. And you know, I know I'm an opinion writer and I can express my opinion, but just objectively speaking, there's no national strategy for anything. And I'm just wondering, you are you are in your third term, second term in Congress. Second term, just my second yeah, it feels maybe like the third, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're in your second term in Congress. Did you think it was possible for the United States to fail this badly in response to a global crisis? Never, never in a million years would I have imagined that the, the president of this country would sink so deeply into cruelty, lack of caring, lack of leadership, and then fundamentally take us down a path to fascism, because that is what's happening with these latest attacks on the Postal Service. And, you know, I, I came here when I was 16 years old by myself, Jonathan, as an immigrant with nothing in my pocket. And I came here because America signified something to the rest of the world that no other country in the eyes of so many people around the world could ever hope to get at innovation, creativity, welcoming of diversity, um, resilience, but also goodness, goodness of heart and mind. And this president has destroyed all of that, destroyed it. And he is taking us down a path to dictatorship. And, and you know, I don't think any of us could have ever imagined it. So when we get a democratic president back, we're also gonna have to look at our constitution and look at all of the things that we need to do to strengthen the tools that Congress has with a person such as Donald Trump that I don't even think uh, the, the founders could have imagined um, this level of lack of caring and cruelty. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the post office and, and what's happening there in terms of mail-in voting and the president casting doubt on mail-in voting, even though he votes by mail himself, he and his wife and lots of members of, it, of his administration. The Postmaster General will be testifying before Congress on Monday. What, would, what do you want to hear from him when he testifies? What big questions do you want him to answer? 
Well, first of all, I want him to say, President Trump, please give me $25 million, uh, $25 billion for the post office so that I can get my people back to work and I can assure the constitutional right. It is in Article 1 of the Constitution that the post office should be funded because it is so important. Number two, I want him to stop these so-called cost-cutting measures that um, are an underhanded but blatant attempt to undermine the effectiveness of the post office. Donald Trump has already said that he doesn't want to fund the Postal Service because he doesn't want mail-in ballots to count. I want this Postmaster General to stand up and say that what he actually needs to do is ensure that people are working overtime if they need to, that they are using the wisdom of the longstanding Postal Workers Union, um, people who have been there delivering mail for so long um, to actually be able to get those ballots in. And then third, I want him to say that they will do everything in their power to ensure that every ballot is counted. Now, I understand that he's not going to do that. He's going to stand up for Donald Trump. But there is always a hope that the bigger picture and responsibility of our democracy can rest in part in his hands and that he steps up and takes actual leadership. Um, would you be interested? I know you're in your, your second term. And let's say, and of course, I'm, I'm now projecting, I'm looking well beyond November, let's say the Biden-Harris ticket becomes the Biden-Harris administration. Would you have any interest in being a part of the administration? You know, I've never been, I talk about this in my book, I've never been one to plan ahead. I always sort of focus on what's in front of me and I look at the opportunities that happen to arise and I figure out if I can do a better job at whatever it is that's arisen or if I can do a better job where I am. And so that's what I'm going to continue to do. You know, I I really enjoy what I'm doing right now and uh, it would have to be pretty good for me to to leave Congress, but I never say no and I never, um, you know, I never imagine what could be possible. So let's see, let's see where we go. But the work at hand is to get them elected and get Donald Trump out of the White House and then push for the most progressive policies possible so that this country can resume leadership in the world. Well, hold up. I noticed a little a little wiggle room there. What would be a good a, a good position? Like when I asked Stacey Abrams, you know, what would she like to do, say, if she weren't, you know, vice president? And she said, head of NASA. I mean, so <laughs> come on, what would you what would you want to do? Oh, Pie in the know, sky. I really, I really haven't thought fully about that um, because there's just so much in front of me, you know, but yeah. It, Secretary of Labor, you know, if we redo DHS completely and make a separate bureau, a cabinet level position for immigration services, maybe that would be something. But um, honestly, like you're getting my in the moment, Jonathan Capehart, Pramila Jayapal thinking on it because this has not been a conversation that um, I have engaged sure. in. I know, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing you because it's, it's fun to think it, it, it's fun to think, you know, sort of light at the end of the tunnel, if you were, right. if you will. Um, in the right. little bit of time, little bit of time that we have left, you know, you are a diehard, you are progressive. As I said in the intro, you supported Senator Sanders. He is, um, they, we call it, there's the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. 
the left wing of the de Democratic Party. But yet in your answers, um, in talking about the road ahead in terms of now and the platform and the campaign and the election and then holding a Biden-Harris administration, if there is one, accountable, you still have your eye on the, on the progressive ball. And so my question to you is, what do you say to those diehard progressives who really wanted Senator Sanders and are disappointed still that he is not the nominee and might be disappointed or not enthusiastic about a Biden-Harris ticket? What do you say to your fellow progressives to keep them in the fold through November so that if there is a Biden-Harris administration, they can get to work on, on holding them accountable for the next four years? Well, you know, I'm an organizer. I spent 25 years of my life before ever getting into elected office organizing on the ground for racial justice and civil rights and human rights. And what I know is that strength comes in times of crisis. No change in the world that is deeply structural and big and bold ever happens overnight. It requires a movement and it requires us to keep our eyes on the prize, to keep our eyes focused on what we need to do to get there, because we're not gonna make those kinds of changes overnight. At the same time, I am not a fan of incremental change. I am a fan of really pushing hard for the big, bold ideas that we need. And so I would just say, again, no progress is possible with Trump in the White House. If Trump is in the White House, say goodbye, not just to Medicare for all, say goodbye to healthcare. If Trump is in the White House, it, you know, anticipate that more drilling areas will open up across the country um, and more parks will be gone and more uh, environmental justice will be undermined for our black and brown communities. If Trump is in the White House, say goodbye to democracy. That is what is at stake, and I'm not exaggerating. So the, the only way we win is to show the strength of progressives, to show that the turnout of our base voters who are going to vote for Biden-Harris, but also hold us accountable for bigger and bolder policies, that, that those folks turn out and they become stalwarts in pushing for that more perfect union. So uh, we need everybody's energy and enthusiasm and we've got a lot of work to do and we are resilient. We do not just step back because our candidate didn't win for the presidency. We got a lot more fight than that. And now my, my final question to you is this. As we know, the president is running a reelection campaign that is grounded in fear uh, among a whole host of other negative, negative issues. He calls uh, Vice President Biden a socialist. He's constantly harping on the squad, particularly Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Um, saying that you guys are you guys are socialists and that socialism will be what will happen to America if if Joe Biden is elected should Americans be afraid that that would happen what do you say to a Trump voter for whom that rings true who might be watching talk to that person well, I would just say that the term socialist has been used for many, many presidents in our history, um, going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, going back to Harry Truman, going back to so many presidents who proposed big ideas 
Um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was called a socialist when he pushed forward the most exciting and important program, public program of social security and Medicare. So I think that this is a common fear tactic, but the reality is if you look at polls across this country, there's a shrinking minority that responds to fear-based uh, tactics. People understand that it's generosity and abundance not fear and scarcity that actually makes America great. And so those are just labels, but they're gonna use those labels no matter what we do. So the reality is people need to look at the actual data, look at what other countries around the world who have thriving markets and economies and businesses, but they provide universal healthcare, they provide universal higher education. They take care of people because they know that at the end of the day, they know what COVID-19 has shown us again and again, that we are deeply interconnected and our future and our liberation are wrapped up together. Whether you're a white guy in, in some rural town in Idaho or whether you're a progressive immigrant uh, farm worker um, in California or whether you're just a small business owner, wherever you are, the reality is we all matter to this country and we need government to be the great equalizer of opportunity. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of the great state of Washington, great to see you again. Thank you for coming on Washington Post Live. Great to see you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.